0: Palliative Care, Death, and Autopsy by Dr. Renee Boss. Hello,
1: my name is Dr. Renee Boss, and today I'll be discussing ethics as they pertain to palliative care, death, and autopsy. As we know, about half of all pediatric deaths occur in infancy, and about half of those occur in the neonatal period. The majority of neonatal deaths at this point occur in the neonatal intensive care unit which means that we, as neonatologists, routinely care for patients at the end of life. Typically, the seriousness of a neonate's illness is evident at birth or even before. This can allow for days to weeks of family support and preparation. The Institute of Medicine and the American Academy of Pediatrics both advocate for palliative care integration beginning from the time of a life-limiting diagnosis, even as curative care also proceeds. Our learning objectives today will be to demonstrate the application of palliative care to infants from the initial diagnosis of a serious condition. We'll also highlight specific needs of families around the time of infant death and describe strategies for several challenging conversations, including talking with families about autopsy. In order to meet those objectives, we have the following goals. To define perinatal and neonatal palliative care describe patient eligibility for palliative care, discuss the scope of integrative versus primary palliative care within the neonatal intensive care unit, to talk specifically about proficiencies for end-of-life care in the neonatal intensive care unit, and to discuss neonatal hospice as well as neonatal autopsy. So let's start with the case. Angelina and Marco Frateroli go for their 20-week prenatal ultrasound. And as many of you know, this is typically a happy time when a couple comes to learn about potentially the sex of their baby and see their baby for the first time. Unfortunately, during that ultrasound, the fetus is diagnosed with holoprosencephaly and a large encephalocele. The obstetrician discusses the diagnosis and the possible outcomes if the couple continues the pregnancy. Miscarriage or the possibility of early neonatal death, or the possibility of a longer life with severe disability. Regardless of the path forward, the obstetrician offers the couple prenatal hospice because the couple and their children are going to need an extra layer of support no matter what happens. What is the prenatal hospice able to offer the family? Well, first and foremost, they're able to offer them home visits, so a chance to go to the home, see the couple, meet the children, understand a little bit more about who this family is. The hospice can review with the couple the decisions that they face, whether that be pregnancy termination or a choice for neonatal intensive care and subsequent surgeries or a choice for hospice. Though the couple ultimately hopes that the diagnosis will be misproven, they plan for delivery, admission to the neonatal intensive care unit, and then hospice. The hospice can provide support to the siblings, to the four and the seven-year-old, and can begin anticipatory grief counseling for the whole family. At the time of Mina's birth, at 39 weeks gestational age, a large, friable encephalocele is indeed present. But Mina is able to breathe spontaneously and even demonstrate some ability to suck. While it's unclear what her prognosis is, It is clear that her death is not imminent. It is also clear that home care, given her encephalocele, is going to be very challenging for the family. After further discussions, they opt for palliative resection of the encephalocele with planning for home hospice afterwards. Unfortunately, following the procedure, Mina becomes septic. She's on a ventilator and begins to become hypotensive as well. The couple asks the neonatologist, doctor, is Mina dying? So let's pause here to be sure that we're all on the same page about what palliative care is. Palliative care is a medical and nursing specialty that began with ward certification in 2006 in this country. Palliative care is also an approach to care of patients with serious illness and manages pain and symptoms, decision support, continuity of care, as well as emotional, psychological, and spiritual support of families. Essentially, the bottom line is palliative care aims to improve the quality of life every day for the patient and family, no matter the prognosis. The phrase perinatal palliative care often describes a range of prenatal and neonatal palliative care. Within palliative care, hospice specifically refers to end-of-life care provided in a variety of sites, either in the hospital, in the home, in an inpatient hospice, or sometimes even in respite. There are a variety of criteria for an eligibility, typically a predicted lifespan of less than six months. The hospice can provide 24-7 supports for the patient and family by telephone and in the home. They're able to walk with the family as they have evolving goals of care depending on the child's condition. Unfortunately, hospice has been least available for infants in this country, although that's improving over the past decade. And with the advent of concurrent care insurance benefits, more and more children are able to receive both hospice and curative care. So who's eligible for perinatal palliative care? Essentially, any patient with a potentially life-limiting illness, and in some institutions, trigger diagnoses are used for palliative care. For instance, single ventricle cardiac disease, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, conditions such as trisomy 13 or 18, uh, extremely low birth weight infants. Essentially, as well, any serious diagnosis with significant uncertainty about the outcome, which in some situations, sounds like it could apply to most, if not all, of NICU patients. There are two primary approaches to palliative care in the neonatal intensive care unit. One is called integrative or primary palliative care, and the other is subspecialty or consultative palliative care. In the case of integrative or primary palliative care, palliative care is essentially integrated into routine NICU care. Now these are services that NICU providers might be trained to provide for essentially any patient, but in the setting of palliative care, there is really a priority given to those services that support the daily quality of life for the infant and the family. For example, the nurses might pay particular attention to the infant's physical environment and to promoting opportunities for family bonding. Respiratory therapists could have a goal of individualizing patient settings on the ventilator or respiratory support so that they're the most comfortable during awake periods. They may be able to work to minimize blood draws. Child life support can come in to encourage staff to focus on non-painful interactions with the child. They may also be able to work on sibling support. And physicians can really focus on high quality, routine communication with the family, including regular family meetings. Now, subspecialty or consultative palliative care is really for those cases that are particularly complex. Subspecialty palliative care is at this point available in most hospitals across this country. It involves an interdisciplinary team, physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, child life, psychology. And the patients who might qualify for consultative palliative care are those who have advanced pain and symptom management issues, might be families uh, and staff who are uh, approaching high stakes decisions. It may also be in situations where the patient and family are seeking alternative care sites for the end of life. For some additional examples of palliative care supports that might be provided in the NICU, there are a variety of infant supports, uh, many focused on comfort, so for instance, alternative pharmacologic preparations for medications, minimizing noise, minimizing cold stress, maximizing the amount of time that families can be holding and doing kangaroo care. Also opportunities to really promote infant development, so maximizing interactions, lots of bonding. There are a variety of family supports as well, so logistical supports are important, thinking outside the box about visiting hours, about sibling visitation, making sure that families have any opportunity possible to have housing nearby or rooming even within the hospital. Intense focus on communication is very important. So how does the family wish to speak to the team? How can the team minimize the jargon? How can the team focus on the big picture for the infant uh, as much as, or perhaps even more than, technical detail about the infant's conditions? and then really providing the family with emotional support, which takes time and presence and acknowledgement of how stressful this is. A variety of staff supports are important as well. So for instance, educating the staff, the whole NICU staff, so that everyone's aware of what palliative care is, the importance of integrating it early, and that it is much more than end of life care. It's also important to provide regular routine forum to discuss challenging cases and to essentially anticipate that there's going to be moral conflicts. Not waiting for a crisis, but early collaboration with the ethics team. So in the remainder of my session, I'm going to focus on end-of-life care. We know that most babies who die in the United States die in the NICU. And we also know that most young families don't have much end-of-life experience. There are a variety of studies to suggest that parents really want us to help prepare them for the dying process of their child and that they very much want us, particularly physicians, to be present during the process. They want to hear from us, what is this going to feel like? What is this going to be like? And how are we going to get through it? Now, when approaching end-of-life care, it's important to think about the what, where, when, how, and why of this process. Let's begin with the what. One of the most important what's of -of end-of-life care is pain and symptom management for the baby. Now, there may be staff that are concerned that adequately treating an infant's pain is going to have the adverse side effect of respiratory suppression. We know that there is a Supreme Court case, Vacco versus Quill, that tells us that patients have a right to pain and symptom management even if that medication provokes apnea. And interestingly, in a review of 165 NICU deaths, in fact, the time to death was two minutes longer and those patients who received supra-therapeutic opiate dosing. In terms of the where of -of end-of-life care, there are a variety of options. So the NICU is one option. Labor and delivery may be an appropriate option if the mother is still admitted. There is a possibility that the child could go home with a choice for extubation, with home hospice, or even to an inpatient hospice. So the question of when, Ultimately, the parents have a large role in helping to decide when, for instance, uh, the child would be extubated or when transition to hospice. Even if families have made a choice, it's important to prepare them for an unexpected crisis or for a potential length of a drawn-out dying process. The how of end-of-life care is uh, important to think about continuity and communication. Relationships are important here to think about rituals, what's important to the family, what can we make happen in the NICU, memory-making, inviting child life in to help think about the siblings, to help think about grandparents, and again, really thinking outside the box here, would the family like to lie down uh, in co-bed with their child on the last day, etc. cetera. And why is it so important for us to focus on these details? It's because we know that long-term parent outcomes are better when we do this well. One end of life care issue that deserves specific planning is that of nutrition and hydration. Now, we know that non-nutritive feedings can be comforting both to the baby as well as sometimes to the family. Some evidence against providing either full volume feeds it, for example, uh, full volume gavage feeds or full volume IV therapy, is that we know that overhydration is uncomfortable at the end of life for adult patients. You should be aware that there are clear AAP guidelines about when withholding artificial nutrition and hydration is a viable option and the appropriate role for an ethics consult in that setting. In the final part of the session, we're going to talk about post mortem care. These are discussions that are really best initiated before the child dies because typically the time that a family has with their baby after death is very limited and very precious. So better to address as many of these details as possible before the death. Talking with the family about what sorts of cultural or religious rituals or requirements uh, might be important to know about. Being sure that you're clear about what hospital policies may exist, for instance, about where the uh, death can occur, can it occur in labor and delivery, as well as hospital policies perhaps relevant to how much time the body can stay with the family prior to going to the morgue. It's important as well to know when organ donation might be a possibility, and in that case who needs to be called, what details need to be put in, put in place, knowing about arrangements for the funeral and the funeral home, would the family want for cremation or a burial. It's also be important to be aware of local resources for these costly services, and then finally getting to, into place bereavement supports. Certainly the autopsy conversation can be very challenging in some situations, although it's interesting to note that the autopsy rates for neonates are actually higher than those for adult patients. There are a variety of benefits to autopsy for neonates. Obviously, one is that we can potentially learn the cause of death. Um, In the case of a condition that could recur in future pregnancies, it can be important for future pregnancy planning and then for quality control issues within the ICU. There may be a variety of less invasive procedures that can obtain at least some of this information for the family if they choose not to have an autopsy. Those might be a skin biopsy or a post-mortem CT scan. Again, it's very important to know the hospital procedures related to autopsy in case the family has questions. So how are the tissues handled? What's the timing? What does partial autopsy versus full autopsy mean? What will happen with retention of the organs and tissues by the hospital? It's also very helpful to practice these conversations ahead of time because there can be some awkward parts of discussing autopsy. For instance, whether the conversation is now using the word baby or the word body. So practicing ahead of time can be very helpful. It can also be very helpful to the learner to attend autopsies as possible, as well as to schedule an autopsy review with the parents if that's something that they might want. Finally, let's return to our case with Mina Frateroli. As you remember, has just had her encephalocele resection, and the hope was that she would be able to be discharged home with hospice. But now after the procedure, she's in the NICU, she's septic and developing hypotension, and her family wonders if she's dying. The neonatologist and the hospice nurse, who's now known the family for several months, meets with the parents. The neonatologist tells them that Mina might recover to go home, and she might not. The hospice nurse reminds everyone about the prenatal goals, which were to maximize human closeness and freedom from pain. The couple decides that they want to take Mina home now, even if it's only briefly. Arrangements are made so that Mina can be transported home by ambulance on the ventilator with the NICU nurse, respiratory therapist, and physician. The neonatologist extubates Mina on her mom's lap, and the hospice assumes care at that point. The hospice has already prepared the family that there might be multiple pathways forward, So Mina may die within moments or hours, but she could live days or more. In fact, Mina dies four hours after she is extubated. And the hospice is able to continue to provide bereavement care for the entire family for the next two years. So in summary, neonatal palliative care is for infants with a life-limiting diagnosis and should begin from the moment of that diagnosis. It can be initiated prenatally for some. NICU clinicians can provide primary palliative care and subspecialty palliative care is indicated in particularly complex situations. When preparing for neonatal end-of-life care, it's important to think about the what, the where, the when, the how, and the why. It's important specifically to plan for fluid and hydration. It's important to understand hospice eligibility and resources in the local community and to prepare for post-mortem care. It's also important to prepare for neonatal autopsy. Thank you for watching.
0: Please help us improve the content by providing us with some feedback. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide.